Thank you, Edgar, for updating us on the situation faced by our brothers and sisters in China, and as well as leading us in prayer for them. I'm reminded of some of the words that we find in Psalm 119, where David writes, It was good for me to be afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And if you've had a chance this week to read any of the, uh, you know, some of the letters that have been written by the, the pastor and some of the elders and some of the wives of the elders in that church have been posted online. And if you've seen any of those, it, it, that's the verse that comes to mind for me because we are seeing such faithfulness uh, and such commitment and such love and such faith in the midst of their trials uh, that really causes us to, to you know, how, how can we not therefore look at our own lives as well and say, gosh, Professing Christ is just on a whole different level in a, in a country where it is not legal and where they don't have the freedoms that we enjoy. I, I couldn't help thinking about such things even in preparing today's sermon, talking about the reality of the Incarnation, which is a, a glorious, glorious reality. But, uh, you know, for us as American Christians, sometimes it's simply hard for us to, to really wrap our souls around these glorious truths and to delight in them because we have so many competing pleasures that the world offers that we're often so drawn to and so taken by. Whereas similar truths are, are held onto for dear life by believers who don't have the, the worldly pleasures uh, that we enjoy. So David writes, it was good for me to be afflicted. There's something salutary for us in our afflictions when those things cause us to, to look to Christ for our joy and to look to Christ for our peace because we don't have it anywhere else. I simply couldn't help thinking about that and th- thinking about <clears throat> the reality of the incarnation. That's what we're looking at today. If you have your Bibles, I, I would invite you to open again to Matthew chapter 1. And the passage I'm going to read is the very same one we looked at last week, but last week uh, we were looking more in the, the earlier verses of this passage. And today I want to focus on uh, verse 23, which is the verse, it's, and it's the only verse in this passage that mentions the reality of the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, mentioned briefly, but, but absolutely central to the reality of Christmas, to the reality of our salvation, to the reality of, of everything in the world, that God, uh, the Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, willingly took on flesh, became a man, was born as a baby in order that God might dwell with his people. So I want to read this passage for you. It's, uh, it's in the bulletin. You're welcome to follow along in the bulletin. Uh, but if you do have your Bibles, you might open them. We're going to be flipping to some different passages today anyway. But, but again, let me ask, if you're able, would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's holy word today? Matthew 1, I'm going to start in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for your truth, for your grace which is revealed to us. We're thankful that it is a light to our path and a a lamp unto our feet to guide us into the path of everlasting life. We're thankful that it is a bond that unites us with all the saints throughout all ages and around the world. Lord, we pray that you might grant us humility and humble hearts, that we might sit willingly at your feet and listen to your word, that we might meditate on these things day and night, that your word may never leave our lips in order that we might have great peace Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Christmas is about the Incarnation. If you wanted to to strip away everything else, all the hustle and bustle, all all the presents, the the songs, the shopping, the cookies, you know, everything else that, that comes together around Christmas and just get straight to the heart of the matter. Christmas is about the incarnation. Christmas is about the reality that Jesus Christ was born as a human baby. And I think one of the, one of the great glories about Christmas and about this truth is that, on the one hand, this is something that's simple enough that even the children can delight in this. Right? Yeah, God was born as a baby. It's a wonderful thing. Some of their... At least for my kids, some of their favorite Christmas songs, you know, Away in a Manger, Silent Night, they're about God who was born as a baby. And yet, at the same time, this truth that God the Son is born as a human baby is so profound and so mysterious that even the, the best of our theologians are, are, are challenged to try to articulate this mystery. And that's the word, right? It's a mystery. It's something that we don't have words to explain exactly how something like this happens, that God becomes man. How is that possible? One person pointed out that that modern people are prone to stumbling over all sorts of things in the Gospels, right? They they stumble over these things and find them difficult to believe, you know, the virgin birth, uh, the miracles that Jesus performed, and particularly the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They say, how can any of this be real. But he said, the greatest miracle is perhaps the miracle of the incarnation. And once you believe and accept that God became man, that, that Jesus is divine, all the other you know, stumbling blocks, they go away. How hard is it to believe in those if first you accept that who you're dealing with here is God become man in the flesh? It is the greatest of, of the mysteries. J.I. Packer even says the incarnation itself is an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. It's a mystery that explains other mysteries. And yet it is, it is mysterious, and, and what we mean by that is, is 
there are, there are realities at play here that simply go beyond our, our, our depth to be able to wrap our minds around these things, to understand that, to, to think of God, God is not of this world. God is completely transcendent. We believe he is completely other. He is not part of his creation. He is creator. His creation is separate from him, right? <clears throat> We're not pantheists, so we don't believe that God is sort of in all things. God may choose to reveal himself through creation, through what has been made, but God is not identified with those things. And so for Christ, who is eternally God, right? Christ did not come into being when he was born in Bethlehem. He has existed in eternity past. He is the second person of the Godhead. For him to take on a human nature, which is a created nature, the creator becomes part of his own creation. How does that happen? That is a, a mystery, and, and we confess this mystery. And part of what's so mysterious is it also kind of leads us right up to the mystery of the Trinity, that here God is three persons in one God. God the Father is not incarnate in Jesus. God the Holy Spirit is not incarnate in Jesus. It's God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who is incarnate in Jesus. Now he does so according to the plan of God the Father, by the power of God the Holy Spirit, but it is only... God the Son, who is born as a baby with human nature, both body and soul, right? with a, a real human body and a reasonable soul that he took to himself. And so to become this, this God-man, this divine human person, and to continue that way. Jesus is still a divine human person today. He did not leave his human nature behind. When he was uh, ascended into heaven, he is eternally God and now eternally man. This is the mystery. This is a mystery that's right at the heart of everything we celebrate at Christmas time. And yet, <clears throat> Philip Melanchthon was one of the reformers in the 16th century, and, and he said this when he was contemplating the mysteries of, of the deity. He said, We do better to adore the mysteries of deity than to investigate them. We do better to adore these things than to investigate them. Now, Melanchthon was by no means some sort of anti-intellectual right, who was against uh, investigation. He knew that investigation often spurs on our, our adoration, but I think what he's saying here is this, that at Christmas time, when, when we start to think about these things, it's easy to get lost on some of the, the sort of metaphysical rabbit trails, right? Or we can get in deep really quickly in, in thinking about these things. And some people trip on those things, right? Some people stumble over these mysteries. But what we're invited to do at Christmas time is not to try to contemplate how it could happen, but to see that it has happened and therefore to worship the God who has loved us and sent his son Jesus to be born as a baby, and we're not invited to, to investigate as much as we are invited to worship, to adore, to grow in love for him. Paul says, you know, in the end of Romans 11, after he's gone through other great mysteries in the history of redemption, and he simply ends with that great benediction where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. He surveys that whole story of redemption. 
And at the end, all he can do is, is look up and worship and say, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And is that not where we're left when we think about what happens at Christmas time? When we think about the reality that, that Jesus Christ is born and he is God, the, the, the eternal king of the universe, born as a helpless little baby. I can't wrap my head around what's going on in that scene it's so quickly that I get out of my own depths. But, but here's what, and, and this is why I bring up what Melanchthon said, we do better to adore than to investigate. Because here's what I notice. When the Bible talks about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, it, it, I don't think it ever brings it up just to sort of investigate the mystery or just to sort of you know, get lost in the profundity of how that could be possible. It always has a very practical purpose. When the Bible talks about the incarnation of Jesus, it's always practical. And it's always to lead us to worship. Uh, the point that the Bible makes about it is that the Word became flesh in order to save us. Right? It's, it's the reason for joy. The incarnation is the reason for hope. And it's a means for us to know Jesus, to get to know the character of Jesus even better. And therefore, as we walk with Jesus and we get to know the character of Jesus, what happens is we also are transformed by that. See, what I want us to do is to approach the reality of the incarnation, not as a topic of grand mystery, although it is, but to approach it in order to know Jesus better. Right? The, to talk about the incarnation shouldn't be approached as though this is, you know, this is theology 501 grad school level, but to approach it as Christian life 101. We must know about the nature of Jesus and his character, if we are going to walk with him. I want to look at a couple different passages that talk about the incarnation and, and see three things. That the Bible talks about the incarnation for our salvation, for our edification, and for our comfort. Those are three of probably the top things I see in, in the Bible's discussion of the incarnation, is that it brings it up in order for our salvation, for our edification, and for our comfort. So first, it, the whole purpose of the incarnation is for our salvation. It is for our salvation. Right? When the New Testament brings up the incarnation, it's pointing us to the reality of our salvation and not just to sort of the bare facts, but in order to help us uh, see the wonder in our salvation, to help us see the glory in our salvation, to help us be moved by the reality of what is happening in our salvation to help us to understand how, how utterly and completely unlikely our salvation really was when we consider the nature of our sin against God, that we were alienated from the eternal, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God, alienated him from him because of our sin and our rebellion against him, personally against him. And yet, the Bible proclaims that a person may be reconciled to God through the death of Jesus because he came as God and man. He came as God in order to become sin, right? Uh, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And, and so it's inviting us to simply contemplate, see the wonder in this, see how utterly unlikely it is and the Bible is pointing us here to see the character of Christ, that he would do that for us. He who is God, he who had every right to be 
uh, personally offended by our sins against him, nevertheless loved us, the objects of his wrath, to such a degree that he humbled himself to the utmost. See, for the Bible, it's not the, it's not the metaphysics of the incarnation that are interesting. It's the fact that in the, in the incarnation, we see the, the absolutely unmeasurable love of God for us. For us. That he came to love us when we were at our most unlovely. And that is why Christmas is so interesting. And that's why the angels were singing to the shepherds. That is why the wise men were crossing deserts to come and offer gifts and bow down before this baby. Because this was about the revelation of the character of God. And, and there's something about the incarnation that opens up a whole new vista of the character of God that, that we simply would not have access to in any other way because the incarnation was the ultimate act of his love. That Jesus, who was God, would come to die. Think of John 3.16 in this, in this respect. It's, you don't even have to turn there because you all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. What is that telling us? But that the incarnation is an act of God's love. That it's an act of his desire for our salvation. That he loved us so much that he desired our salvation and would move heaven and earth and go to every length necessary in order to accomplish our salvation. And just put yourself at that point in the story and, and you, you'd almost object and say, Lord, there's only one way to accomplish it and, and, and you know, you'll never believe it. It's, it's this extreme thing that has to be done. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Who could have seen that coming beforehand that, that God himself would become flesh? That if the only way to accomplish our salvation was that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would be born as a baby, grow up, suffer all of the miseries of this life, and then be killed. And then say, but he'll do that. He will do that. He will willingly do that as an act of his love. Jesus had to be born as the baby. He had to be incarnate in order to save us, right? Hebrews 2 tells us Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way in order to make propitiation for the sins of his people. This is saying the exact same thing, that in order for us to be saved, he had to be born as a baby. He had to be made man, right? Take on flesh, be incarnate, made like his brothers in every way. There's some great questions that are in the larger catechism, not the shorter catechism that we commonly use, but the larger catechism even goes on to ask these questions. Why was it necessary that our mediator would be man? And he says, only a man could make satisfaction for the sins of man. Only a man could be our substitute. Only then could he be a faithful high priest. Only then could he sympathize with us. And it asks, why was it necessary that the mediator had to be God as well? Because only as God could he live a perfect life, could he give worth and efficacy to his sufferings and satisfy God's justice. So it makes this point that in order for us to be saved, the only way that it could happen was that we would have a mediator, a savior, who was both God and man at the same time together. Which seems the most unlikely thing, and yet Jesus, out of his love for us, he came. 
He came. Christmas is ultimately about salvation. And there's no hope of our salvation if Jesus is not God who's come to be born as a baby, a human baby with a human body and human nature. So Christmas is about salvation. Our incarnate, the incarnation of Jesus is about our salvation. It's also about our edification. And edification is just a fancy word for growing in Christ. At the process of, of walking with Christ, it's talking about how we change, how we are transformed. And the incarnation is about our transformation. And how does that happen for us? How does our transformation as believers in Christ take place? I think it takes place primarily as we walk with Christ. As we know his character, as we walk through life with him, knowing him, becoming more like him. And we don't know the character of Christ without the incarnation. It is central to who he is. It's a display of who he is. Sort of the the most important thing to know about Jesus is the nature of his incarnation. Uh, think about, I want to take us to two verses that, that demonstrate this. 2 Corinthians 8-9. In those verses in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is talking about giving and he's talking about generosity. And he's, trying, he's encouraging the Corinthians and, and, and us, right, by extension, he's encouraging us to grow in our generosity, to grow in our ability to give uh, wholeheartedly and, and joyfully, And so how does he do that? And how does he teach people who are people like us, for whom generosity doesn't come naturally, it's not just second nature, how does he teach them to be generous? Well, he appeals to the reality of the incarnation of Christ. So 2 Corinthians 8 9, he says this, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So he simply begins this whole thing by pointing us directly to Christ and says, look at Christ. As an example, he who was rich, <coughs> and by rich there, he, he means, what, he was, he was divine? He had all power and glory by, by divine right? He was perfectly self-sufficient. He never knew any need. Uh, he never had any needs. And yet, what does he say? He who was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. In, in such a, a lavish demonstration of his grace, he who is rich, and, and, and rich doesn't capture it, does it? He who is ultimately beyond even thinking about having a need. Yet he willingly became poor. He temporarily set aside the glory of being divine and, and was born as a baby. A baby who is completely dependent. Right To say that God never knew need a baby almost knows nothing but need, right? They, they can't take care of themselves in any way. He was dependent on others for everything, and he willingly, being rich, chose that he would become poor. Right? Even um, our shorter catechism says, wherein does Christ's humiliation consist? His humiliation consists in being born, and that in a low condition. That was part of Jesus willingly humbling himself. And how many of us, if, we, if you could sort of go back in time and be granted this magical wish to choose the circumstances of your birth, to choose the family that you would be born into, 
to choose the, the income level of that, that family and the social connectedness of that family. I wonder how many of you would have picked your own family. I wonder how many of you would have said, no, dial it down a few notches, a more humble family. No. I, I mean, all of us, if we were given that choice way back in you know, eternity past, would say, you know, maybe Bill Gates' family looks okay. Uh, you know, Elon Musk's family. I don't, I don't know what those families are actually like, but wouldn't we pick the best of the best? That would give us the most opportunities. That would provide the most comfort for us, the most pleasures for us. Jesus is born to, to Mary and Joseph, a young couple so poor and so powerless that they are reduced to sleeping in somebody else's barn. Even though Mary is nine months pregnant, the most dire condition, and yet they don't have those strings to pull to somehow get a better situation. At that most dire time, they're still at the lowest position. They have nothing. And Jesus is born to them. The one person in all of history who actually did have that choice, and he humbled himself and said, I I will choose to know what my brothers and sisters are going through. I must be made like them in every way, even those who have nothing. And the point, of course, is not for us to feel sorry for him (coughs) or to feel sorry for Mary and Joseph that they didn't have more than they had. The point is for us to, to begin to see the character of Christ, to see his willing humility. That's why Paul brings it up, right? He's talking about us growing in generosity, and he knows that that this is one of the most difficult virtues for us to to grow in and to to joyfully grab onto and to to love this virtue. And so he simply points us to Christ and says, think about the character of Christ and think about what could have made him choose such abject humility except that he has loved you that much. And therefore, what are we living for? See, the way to change your heart is, is simply this. It's through knowing Christ. It's through thinking on Christ. It's through walking with Christ and knowing him as the one who humbles himself, who gives generously, who, though he was ultimately rich, would choose on our behalf to become poor in order that we, through that poverty, might become rich. He gave everything in order that we might live. And so even to celebrate Christmas... How can we not, at a time of celebrating the Incarnation, how could we fail to grow in our generosity through it? Or let's look at another passage, Philippians chapter 2. Not talking here about generosity. Here Paul's talking about humility. Maybe that's the other greatest, most difficult virtue for us to grow in. Probably one of the most countercultural character traits in our world today is the character trait of humility, of, of willingly and joyfully thinking less of yourself in order to think more of others. We all need help with this one. So how does he approach it? What does Paul do in Philippians chapter 2? He points us to the incarnation of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, even if we pick it up in uh, verse 3 to hear the sense of what he's talking about, he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Now, how do you get there? That's verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And here's how he describes him. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, here's Paul's sort of MO, right? His working method for teaching humility is to say, we learn humility when we walk with Jesus, who is the ultimate humble one. Consider this humility, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but like held on to. He had every, every privilege that he could possibly have, and he willingly set that aside in order to be born among us. And, and these verses just kind of, it's like the levels of humility just keep getting lower. Right? He's born as a, a man. He takes the form of a servant, so it's a, a low estate among men. And then it says, and being found in this human nature, now what does he do? He humbles himself. He goes again and he says he became obedient to the point of death. What kind of death? Even death on a cross, the lowest possible death. Here, here is this picture of Jesus Christ, the most exalted, eternal God, willingly bringing himself down as far as possible in order that he might save the people whom he loves. You know, as, as in, in terms of acts of humility, we can't even rank that. Right? It, no one has ever been as exalted as Christ and willingly took on a lower position. It's just, it's an off-the-charts act of humility for us. And Paul's purpose in pointing us to this act of, of Christ, to, to what he has done, you know, there's a theological purpose because he's teaching us about Christ and how exalted he is and how we worship him, but he also has a very practical purpose to it. He's trying to teach us humility. And he says the way that we as people are going to learn humility, which is a virtue that is hated, wildly hated in this world. How do we learn it? Because it's a virtue absolutely loved and adored by God. Well, you learn it when you walk with Jesus, the humble one, the generous one. It's for our own edification. And so he's invoking the incarnation. Again, it's not, it's not to get lost in the mystery. It's a very concrete reality here to say that here's what Jesus has done. What does it mean for us to walk with someone who's like that? And if we are walking with Jesus who has done this thing, what kind of things are we going to do? He's saying Jesus is our example in this. Not that we may become incarnate, we are, we are what we are. Right? But we are to willingly take the form of a servant. Right? Christmas is meant to be an example for us. That Jesus humbled himself, <clears throat> and so are we. And to some extent, it's almost such an extreme example that uh, I almost laugh at my own struggles with humility in comparison to what Jesus has done, right? I mean, I know how hard it is for me <clears throat> to humble myself to do some of my basic household chores, things that take, you know, five minutes to get done and are, you know, no skin off my nose to do these things, and yet it's a struggle. And Paul says, have you considered the Incarnation? Have you considered the way that Jesus humbled himself from most exalted, eternal God to the, to the lowest form of a servant taking the worst possible death? Have you considered that? And, and he says, right, the first verse, verse 5, have that mind among yourselves. I think that you know you are walking with Jesus when that kind of humility begins to grow in your life. Right? Because, because the character of Christ rubs off on those 
who are with him. That's why Mark says the disciples, he chose 12, that they should be with him. That's the description of, of discipleship, being with Jesus, walking with him, and thereby becoming like him. So the incarnation, it's for our salvation, it's for our edification, and lastly, it's for our comfort. Uh, It's for our comfort. It demonstrates how much God cares for his people. And um, if we go back to Matthew 1, where we began in these verses, Matthew 1, that's the message of these verses here when he says God is with us. That's the application, is that this, this truth is ultimately for our comfort. And, and what I want us to see here, here's, here's Matthew, um, Joseph rather. Joseph is afraid, and then the angel announces to him that Jesus shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And after that, Joseph is not afraid, and he obeys. That's the message, incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us, is for our comfort, it's for our hope to move us from fear and reluctance into comfort and obedience, that we can listen to uh, the, the instructions that we get from Christ and obey Him. That's the reality. That's the meaning of the incarnation. If we go back to Isaiah, which is where this quote comes from, this verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. He's quoting there from the prophet Isaiah, and it's Isaiah chapter 7. And let me just real briefly tell you what was going on in that chapter. Uh, King Ahaz was the king of Judah. If you remember at that time, the nation of Israel was split in two, the kingdom of Judah in the south and the kingdom of Israel in the north. Uh, and, and both of those kingdoms were under threat from the nation of Assyria. They were going to get attacked. And the kingdom in the north, uh, the kingdom of Israel under King Pekah, they had... Uh, been approached by Syria to sort of bond together and make an alliance with Syria in order to stand against the Assyrians. Uh, And to do that, they had to pay some tribute to the Syrian king. And now those two nations, Syria and the the northern kingdom, are trying to get the southern kingdom with King Ahaz to be in league with them. They want them to join the alliance, right? to stand against the Assyrians. And all they have to do is pay a little bit of tribute. And so this comes at a time when, when King Ahaz is very afraid. Right? He's under this threat from the Assyrian army. And he's basically plotting what to do. Because that's what you do when you're afraid, is you begin plotting. What am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this? What's my next move? And he's considering this alliance. And, and Isaiah tells him, <clears throat> you should not trust in man. You should trust in the Lord. Right? To, to go into this alliance would be just putting your trust in in chariots and horses and in, in men to save you, you are to trust in the Lord your God. And, and God is actually trying to comfort Ahaz as well. And God tells him, he says, Ahaz, ask me for a sign. And Ahaz is, is a little bit too pious and he refuses. He doesn't ask for a sign. So God says, all right, I'm going to give you the sign. Here's the sign I'm going to give you. A virgin will conceive and bear a child and they will name him Emmanuel. And the meaning of that name is that God is with us. Now, we read that and we know he's talking about Christ, but think of what that meant to Ahaz at the time. Even though he would not meet that child during his life, the message was clear. The message in the midst of his fear and his uncertainty and not knowing what to do was that God is with you. Don't go plotting and scheming and putting your trust in your own wisdom 
Don't go putting your trust in your own strength, your own political scheming to be able to work your way out of this danger. Your comfort is that God is with you. Emmanuel is the name of this child. Take that to heart. And isn't that the exact same thing that Mary and Joseph were going through? <coughs> they also were afraid. Here was, was this bewildering situation that they found themselves in. They did not know what to do. And you can just imagine how much Joseph was plotting and scheming. Okay, how do I save face? How am I going to spin this? Right? How do I get out of this situation? Where, you know, there's embarrassment here. I don't know what to do. And again, the angel comes and he says... Emmanuel is this child's name. God is with us. You don't need to trust in your own wisdom, in your own abilities, your strength, your, your sort of your political scheming to work things to your own advantage. What you need to do is to remember that God is with you. Let your hope and your trust be in God, not in man or your own strength. And I wonder how often we play the part of Ahaz or, or Joseph. Many of us, I'm, I'm certain, are playing the part right now where we see the world around us, <clears throat> things are not going as we planned. Right? We're, not, we're not living the life that we desire, and so we're fearful. We're afraid. And so we start plotting. How are we going to save ourselves? What alliances do we need to spin in order to get out of this situation? How are we going to avoid the embarrassment and so we take things into our own hands. And oftentimes, you know how it is when, when we're afraid, that's when we compromise. Right? Sure, in a perfect world, we wouldn't do these things, but things aren't perfect. We are afraid. We don't know who we can trust. And so we compromise. Right? We've all been there. Some of us are there right now. And here's the message of Christmas. That Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. In the midst of our fear and uncertainty and doubt and not knowing what this world is coming to, we do not need to trust in our own wisdom. And if we do that, it will only cause us to fall. We're not to trust in our own strength. We're not to trust in our cleverness to, to, to slide out of a sticky situation. Where is our trust? It's this. God is with us. God is with us. He has come to us in Christ and will never let us go. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Do not lean on your own understanding. But trust in the Lord with all your heart. Because look at Jesus. Look at the, how unlikely the incarnation seems from all rational viewpoints, that God would become man, that Jesus would, would live among us and die for us. So utterly unlikely, and yet that is the reality because Jesus loves his people and is a merciful and compassionate high priest who knows your suffering, who knows your trials, who knows them because he's been there. He's endured trials as a man. Which means whatever your circumstances may be, God is with you. And Romans tells us, this is the final word for today, that he who did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The incarnation is a means for great hope and great joy this Christmas. Let's pray together. Father, we're, we're thankful for Christ. We're thankful for Christ, and we, 
confess that we want to know him better. We want to walk more closely with our Savior Jesus who loved us and has given himself for us, who willingly set aside all the glories and joys of, of Godship, of divinity, in order that he might demonstrate the depth of his love for us. Lord, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would press these truths on our hearts this season of Christmas time. And Lord, as we walk with Jesus, we pray that that will be the uh, means of transformation, of greater love, of greater worship, of greater joy in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is God with us. We pray in his name. Amen.